Thanks for joining us here at Temple Baptist Church in Centralia, Illinois, where we are a community of people who are not perfect and don't pretend to be. If you would like to see other resources or learn more about our ministry, check out www.tbccentralia.com. Our hope and prayer is that through the following message, you are encouraged, blessed, and inspired to meet the Lord in a powerful way. If you would, open up your Bibles to 1 Kings 22 and then Ephesians chapter 5. 1 Kings 22 and Ephesians chapter 5. So uh, I'm in a, a series called God's Prescription for Your Best Year Ever. And last week we talked about the five essentials that we need. And this week I want to talk about getting your ship out of harbor. And it might have been better to title this, Getting Your Car Out of the Parking Lot. Uh, because this weather is incredible. It reminds me of a young um, guy who had just finished seminary, and he was called to a church out in Wyoming, sight unseen. He hadn't been out to Wyoming. He hasn't visited the church, um, but they had called him to be their pastor. And so he shows up, and it was actually on a Sunday night before he got there, and the service was supposed to start at 6 o'clock, and um, he, he, it was in the middle of a blizzard. I don't know about you, but in Wyoming, it's kind of like what we had last night, only worse. All right, and so it was like that, and so he's there at the church, and one guy shows up and opens up the door, and he goes in and introduces himself as the new pastor, and the, uh, the guy introduced himself as one of the deacons, and, and so the gentleman had a seat in about the middle of the, uh, the pews, and it came time to start the service, and, um, and so the pastor turned around and looked at the guy and said, hey, he goes, you know, this is my first time, you know, I don't know what to do, he goes, you know, what do you think? He goes, well, he says, I'm not a pastor. He goes, I'm a rancher. And he goes, you know what, if I, if I went out to feed the, the cattle and um, only one showed up, I'd feed the cattle. He goes, well, all right, I'm going to preach. And so he got up there and he preached. And, and again, this is, he just got out of seminary. He'd been working on this sermon for years. And he preached and he preached and he preached. Well, about an hour and a half later, he stopped and um, you know, that, that was about the end of it. And, and so he, he, he didn't know what else to do. So he just kind of reached out to the, the, the rancher and he says, uh, what do you think? He goes, well, he goes, I'm not a pastor. And, and so he goes, I really don't know how to judge that. He goes, and, and you know, um, you're right. I told you that if, uh, if, if I showed up to feed the cattle, I I'd, I'd, had fed them. He goes, but I don't think I'd give them the whole tractor load. So, so I don't know what you're going to get. Are you going to get the tractor load or uh, just a little bit? Um, but we are going to talk about glorifying God in the way that we eat, move, and think. You know, that's what we're going to be uh, staying focused on over the next couple of weeks. And uh, I don't know if you realize this, but this, earlier this week there was a national holiday. Do you know, did you all realize that? Did you all miss that? There was a national holiday. Well, maybe it's not a national holiday. Um, January 17th is National Ditch New Year Resolutions Day. That is the day of the year that almost 90% of the people who've made New Year's resolutions quit. And, you know, to be honest with you, we need to apologize to the word resolution when we use it in the term of New Year's resolutions. Because most people realize that they are not going to follow through on, I mean, 90% aren't going to follow through on those resolutions. But if you're like... 
Even those 92% that uh, by January 17th have given up on their New Year's resolutions, you might find yourself in a rut. Anybody ever found themselves in a rut before? Before January 17th? Yes. You know, and here's what's interesting. The only difference between a rut and a grave is the depth. And some of you probably may be feeling like, you know what, Um, maybe, maybe, you know, it's not a rut. Maybe this is the end of the line. Um, But you know what I want to share with you today? That it doesn't have to be the end of the line. Again, if you turn to 1 Kings chapter 22, I'm going to read verses 41 through 48. It says, Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Now, I don't... Now, if you realize this, but um, Israel was divided into two nations. One was Israel, and one was Judah. And uh, ten tribes went one way, and two tribes went the other. And so, um, here is Jehoshaphat, and his father was Asa, who was a great king, a, one who followed after the Lord. Matter of fact, he became a king at a very young age. And Jehoshaphat was a little bit older when he became king. And it says here in 42, Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zuba, the daughter of Shilhai. In verse 43, he walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And from the land he exterminated the remnant of the male cult prostitutes who remained in the days of his father Asa. There was no king in Edom, a deputy was king. In verse 48, Jehoshaphat made ships out of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they did not go for the ships were wrecked at Ezion-Geber. Now, here's what's interesting. Jehoshaphat was a good king. But yet, you know, Jehoshaphat left some decisions left unmade. You know, and and it's the same for us. Uh, 2019's here. We're going to uh, live each day throughout it. And throughout the year, we're going to have the opportunity to make decisions all right, I don't know what that sound is. Are you guys picking that up in the back? Where are they at? No. <laughs> is that a radio or? Ah. Excellent. Well, that means there's life in there. So the second verse I want to share with you is in Ephesians 5 and verse 15. It says, be careful how you act. These are difficult days. And I'm here to tell you that in 2019, you are going to face difficulties. You're going to face difficult days. It, you know, just because you're a Christian, just because you attend church here at Temple, uh, I promise you that difficult days are going to come. But here's the key, that we don't give up during the difficulties. That we don't uh, uh, forfeit our um, opportunities. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you um, six different steps, that, or actually five different steps that we can take. And if you open up your bulletin, you'll see that there's a note taker there. 
And if you look at that note taker, I'm going to cover a couple of things that we must do if we want to get our ships out of harbor. If we don't want to be like um, Jehoshaphat and have our ships stuck. Because what's interesting is he had the opportunity to fix that problem. But if you read the, read the rest of the chapter, you'll see that he doesn't do that. Doesn't follow through on that. So the five things that we must do, and the first one is this, we must stop accusing and excusing. You know, um, there are actually three kinds of people in the world. There are accusers. Accusers are the people who spend their entire lives blaming everybody else for their stress, for their difficulties, for their problems. You know, when we talk about accusers, um, here's what it sounds like. If they say this, if I had a different husband, all right, now some of them might be right. Uh, if I had a different parent, if I had a different wife, if I had a different job, a different boyfriend, if the weather was just a little different. You know, but the reality is that all the accuser does is make themselves out to be a victim. You know, the Bible shares with us the uh, first uh, couple of accusers. And in Genesis chapter 3, I'll just read a couple verses to you here. And they heard the sound of the Lord and God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the, here it goes, he's an accuser. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. All right, just like a man, right? And then verse 13, then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman becomes an accuser and she says, the serpent delivered this to me. You know, becoming an accuser is not going to get us anywhere in life. It's just going to make us a victim. And being a victim is not what we want to be. We want to be victors. Well, not only is the world full of accusers, but it's full of excusers. You know, so if they're not blaming someone else, excusers make excuses why they're not doing something with their life or in their life. You know, I think about this. When I want to procrastinate on something, any excuse will do. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, we didn't need the weather to slow us down this week, did we? But we sure did take advantage of it. So there's accusers, there's excusers. But I think what we really want to be is the third option, and that's choosers. You know, one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us is the ability to choose. That's what separates us from the animals. That we have the ability to make decisions. We're free to make those choices. But you know what? We're not free to make the, or be free of the consequences from those choices. You know, choosers say this, that they, I take responsibility for the direction of my life. Choosers, here's what choosers do. They consistently do what other people do occasionally. They consistently make decisions. And making decisions that are hard. but they take that responsibility on themselves. You know, the Bible tells us in Galatians that we are responsible. Galatians 6.5 says we are each responsible for our own conduct. You know, choosers have realized that. 
they've recognized that and they've actually embraced that in their life. And so here's what I would tell you. Stop complaining about why your ship isn't out of the harbor. Stop complaining because of the shipwreck. Stop complaining because of what's going on wrong in your life. And start accepting the responsibility that's, that's yours to, to bear with that uh, condition that you're in. I'd say stop complaining and start making smart choices. You know, I've said this many times that you're as close to God as you choose to be. So don't blame your wife. Don't blame your husband. Don't blame somebody else. And please don't blame the weather today. If you're not close to God, right now, guess who moved? God didn't move. If you're not close to God right now, guess whose choice it was? Realize that you're as close to God as you choose to be. Stop blaming our circumstances. So let me ask you a personal question that you can ponder and maybe write a little note down on the note taker. Who are you blaming for your stress? What are you blaming for your stress? Or who or what are you blaming for your unhappiness? Who are you still holding a grudge against? Who are you still bitter against because of something that's happened in your life? Who are you still saying, if that had not happened, my life would be different? I got to break it to you. Newsflash, it happened. I'm sorry that it happened. But the question is this. Even though it's probably not fair, even though it's probably not just, the Bible tells us that we have a choice. We have a choice on how that we deal with those circumstances. So, you know, I hope that you make the choice to um, stop being an accuser and excuser. And the second thing I, I would encourage you to do is that we must surrender the dream that we have to Jesus. You know, Philippians 4.13 tells us, I can do everything with the help of Christ who gives me strength. You know, uh, life is not easy. It's difficult, as I, I said earlier. And what's really interesting is that there's six phases to the dream that God puts in each one of our hearts. The first phase is this, God gives you a dream. Has anybody ever had something, um, maybe you wouldn't consider a dream, but it's a, a desire in your life, something to accomplish, uh, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a, uh, you know, a certain person or a certain status. Am I the only one that God's put that in my heart? Yeah. And you know, and here, so here's what happens. He gives us that dream. And then the second thing is that we make a decision to pursue that dream. All right, that's phase two. Well, phase three is what everybody knows happens, and that is delay. There's always a delay between the time that God gives us the dream and the fulfillment of it. And then what happens, phase four hits us, and we are uh, experiencing what I'm talking about today, and that is difficulties. And then phase five, and this is where, this is January 17th for a lot of people in God's dream in their life, and the dream becomes a dead end. And they give up on that dream. You know, and, and many people walk away from the dream that God has put in their heart at that stage when they feel like it's reached the dead end. And they never get to phase six, which is deliverance. Where God actually brings to fruition the dream that he's put in their heart. You know, God loves to turn crucifixions into resurrections. Amen? God, instead of giving you a breakdown or a breakup, what God wants to do is give you a breakthrough. But most of us walk away from God. We make that choice before we ever get the chance to, to reach the breakthrough. If I read verse 12 in uh, Philippians, it says, I've learned that the secret of living in every situation, 
whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, I can do all, everything, all things with the help of Christ who gives me the strength I need. Folks, don't give up on the dream that God's placed in your heart because he will deliver. We just got to keep showing up. We got to keep pressing towards that dream. The third thing we must do is we must set some faith goals. You know, we have to decide what's important and what's not. All this year, you are going to be faced with a lot of these decisions of what's important and what's not important. What matters and what doesn't matter. What's going to last and what's not going to last. And once you realize what's important, what matters, what's going to last, then we need to make some goals around that. And in this case, one of our uh, essentials to uh, having our best year ever is faith. And so let's set some faith goals. And here's what they look like. First of all, that they need to be focused. You know, our goals need to be specific. We should have um, a very clear ideal of where we're headed. You know, it's when we have vague goals that they're really not goals at all. They're just maybe possibly a to-do list. The second thing about our goals is that they should be attainable. You know, and when we talk about attainable, we mean that they need to be practical or even possible to reach. Because some people set some goals for their life that there's no way they're ever going to reach those. But the goals that we need to be setting for ourselves should be not only possible, but should be practical as well. And they need to be individual. What, what do I mean by individual? You can't set goals for other people. Ladies, husbands and wives, I know you want to do this for your significant other. I know you want to do this for your children. But you know what? Your goals for them mean nothing to them. The same thing is true. There's people who want to set goals for you. All right? You probably know who I'm talking about right now. They're not afraid to tell you about these goals that they have for you in your life. But the reality is that if you want to set faith goals, that it has to be you. It has to be um, coming from you. From within inside. And not only that, but our goals need to be trackable. If you come to our staff meetings on Tuesdays, uh, we are measuring a lot of the things that we're doing here in church. And what's interesting is, as we look back over the weeks to watch us improve as we go through week after week after week. You know, so when I see um, a, the weather that we have this weekend and I see a, a down uh, congregation tennis, I don't get discouraged. You know why? Because I see where we're going as a church. I see where we're going to be in three months as a church. You know, and so your goal needs to be trackable. You need to be keeping numbers up on this. Because if you don't, February is going to get here and you'll have stopped on that goal. And lastly, it needs to be heartfelt. Your goals have to come from the heart. An easy way to find out if it's from the heart is it doesn't motivate you. Does it get you up on a day like today and get you in the car and get you out? That's what faith goals look like. You know, the Bible says this, that God works in our lives according to faith. It says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whatsoever of faith is not sin. In a verse I shared with you last week in Matthew, and that was, according to your faith, be it unto you. And the reality is, the reason why most of us live disappointed lives is because we don't have the faith to make it to stage six of our dreams where God gives us deliverance. So, what we need to do is decide what's important, what matters, and what's going to last, and set our goals around that. 
You know, the fourth thing that we must do, and that is we've got to find a friend to help. Just think about this. All the great partners throughout history. Paul Lennon had McCartney to, to write all those great songs. Lewis had Clark to do the expeditions that we can go over to St. Louis and, and hear about. Ben had Jerry to develop ice cream. Sonny had Cher. Bonnie had Clyde. Ricky had Lucy. Come on. Even Barbie had Ken. Heckle had Jekyll. And the Lone Ranger had Tonto. He wasn't alone. Maybe the only person who doesn't need a partner is Chuck Norris. And I've got news for you. You are not Chuck Norris. All right? The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 4.9, it's better to have a partner than to go it alone. If you want to get your ship out of harbor, if you're tired of being stuck at this time of year, after year, after year, I'd encourage you is to find somebody. Find a friend. Find a partner. Somebody who will walk some of those steps with you. You know, the problem with that is we have to make ourselves vulnerable. We have to be able to share where we're coming from. And as a human, it's hard to do that because they may use that against us. But I promise you, and there are many that will attest to this, that if you'll find that friend, if you'll allow them to know your greatest fears, you'll probably find somebody who becomes your greatest advocate. They'll be there for you. They'll be there with you. You know, see, nobody does it alone. Your ship's not going to get out of harbor if you try to do it alone either. And the fifth uh, thing that we must do is we must start right now. Ecclesiastes 11.4 tells us this. If you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. Amen? How many people have waited for the perfect conditions? I've done it, you know, and we've let uh, perfection stop us too many times. You see, we can't wait until tomorrow. You can't wait until next week. You can't wait until things get better. You can't wait until you feel like it, and you certainly can't wait until the weather improves because I think this is going to be here for a little while. You need to start right now. You need to determine in your heart right where you're sitting. And as soon as you get home, you need to start taking action steps on what you're going to do. You need to take this message and set some goals for the next 60 days. Between now and the end of winter, what are you going to do? Because what are you going to accomplish? It matters. Don't delay. Don't wait any longer. And by all means, stop procrastinating. How many of you are good procrastinators? I'm gifted at this. I mean, I'm like, you know, this, like if this was a spiritual gift, I got a big measure of it. All right? Matter of fact, I came across this uh, little poem. It says, procrastination is my sin. It only brings me sorrow. I know I ought to start today. In fact, I will tomorrow. <laughs> Genesis 43.10 tells us that if we had not waited so long, we could have been there and back twice by now. This was one of uh, Joseph's brothers when they went back to their father. And they were sharing with him, hey, we need to take our little brother with us. All right? But that wasn't good enough. And so they delayed, and there was a famine going on, and the family was suffering. And You know, when we say a family, we're not talking about a family of four. We're talking about a family of 400. And so finally, one of the older brothers made that statement. If we had not waited so long, we could have been there and back twice. You know, it's never going to be an ideal time for you to get your ship out of harbor. 
It's never going to happen. If you wait for the perfect time, you're going to be disappointed. Folks, I'm tired of being disappointed. The Bible says that if you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. I bet you a lot of us can give testimony to that. You know, procrastination is, the, is fueled by perfectionism. Leave your perfectionism at the door. If you're waiting for the perfect moment, ain't going to come. If you tell yourself when things get right, we're going to do something, ain't going to happen. You're never going to do it if you keep waiting for the right time. You're never going to do it if you wait for the right time to start tithing. In fact, the best time to start is when you've got financial problems. Because you're wanting God's help, there's the place to go. Um, I can tell you this, that life is going to be lived in less than perfect circumstances. It, It doesn't get much better than this until we get on the other side of eternity. Until we get to heaven. And you have to realize that, that what we do in this life is going to be up to the choices and the decisions that we make. And so our challenge is that we have to figure out how do we live in the middle of all this stress, in the middle of all these less than perfect conditions, as life goes on, as family members pass away, as children make decisions that we don't particularly care for. How do we continue? Because I believe that the number of perfect situations in your life that you can count on are probably on one hand and some of us one finger. And some of us are still waiting for that. And as I started thinking about our church and as it being what kind of vessel would it be? What kind of ship? Because you know what? We are going to get our ship out of harbor. We are, we are starting to move out. And so if we were a ship, we'd be an aircraft carrier. Because an aircraft carrier is the one, it's a giant platform where it sends out planes to the battle. You know, and that's really what we are doing here as a church. We are sending you out into the battle. And as much as I love what we're doing here on Sunday, it's really not about Sunday. You're going to see something um, that uh, we'll be putting in front of you, and it's called hashtag 165. And what hashtag 165 is talking about is, see, we probably spend about three hours a week here at church. And there's 168 hours in a week. And what do we do with those other 165? You see, what we do with those other 165 is going to determine what happens with the three hours that we're here. Not only is it the hashtag 165, but we're about to launch our children's ministry. You know, uh, we have taken a big step in faith in bringing on someone full-time to develop our uh, ministry, our children's ministry. And in March, we are going, this ship is leaving harbor. And if you've been watching, I've got some 20 before 2020 goals. Remember what they are? What are some of those goals that we... We are going to have 20 different uh, baptisms before uh, the end of the year. We're going to have 20 new families join our church. We're praying that 20 children will, on average, that we'll have as part of our children's ministry. And I'm believing that God is going to give us 20 visitors on one particular Sunday. Can you pray with me and believe? You know, uh, these are absolutely faith goals that I've set. And here's what's interesting. I'm not stopping at 20. You know, it's not like we're going to get to 20 like, whoo, all right, we can take the rest of the year off. No. All right. I, I chose 20 because of 2020. I kind of wish it was 2057, you know, and, and I could have set a different goal. 
But here's the reality, that we are about to start making a bunch of um, small decisions. And the question is, are we going to make small good decisions or are we going to make small bad decisions? Think about it this way. You walk on the treadmill three times this week and then you get on the scale and you gain two pounds. You read the Bible plan all week and yet you found yourself this morning yelling at the kids all the way to church. You don't buy coffee for a month. You save $100 and your student loan gets reduced from $37,500 to $37,400. And all of a sudden you think that, you know what? All those good decisions, they're not adding up to very much. And so the, uh, the conclusion you make is that I can make some bad decisions. And so instead you decide to play video games for three hours. And guess what? Your wife doesn't leave you. And you think, well, that's okay. You decide to skip church for one weekend and you realize that you know what life goes on it doesn't seem to matter that much or you eat half a box of chocolates and you know what it didn't you didn't gain two pounds on the scale and what happens is we wrongly conclude that our small bad decisions don't matter that much either but the reality is is that our lives are the sum of the small decisions that we make and we're making a lot of them you know we don't change overnight but we do change daily each day as we make these small decisions. And here's what happens. When we make a lot of small bad decisions, we rarely wreck our life all at once. But over time, it adds up. But then we also make small good decisions. And our hard work, our discipline, our sacrifice, the faithfulness, it's not being wasted. It adds up and in one day, the dam is going to burst. And the question is, what small decisions have you been making? Have they been a lot of small bad decisions or a lot of small good decisions? Because one day, that dam opens up and it's going, you're going to reap all those decisions that you've been making. And so I'll leave you with this. Are you going to look at the problems and the difficulties that we have in 2019 as obstacles or are you going to look at them as opportunities? I read Ephesians 5, uh, 15 and 16 to you. I, I started off with, be careful how you act because these are difficult days. But if you look at the second verse in 16, it says, don't be fools, be wise. Make the most of every opportunity you have for doing good. So I'm going to leave you with a couple of just very quick things that we can take and look at our obstacles and turn them into opportunities. Why would we do this? Here's why we want to change our obstacles to opportunities. Number one is to deepen our relationships. You know, Hebrews 3.13 tells us this, encourage everyone while you have the opportunity. You know, we want to be a church that encourages each other. I've shared with you there's three goals that we want to reach out to. This is our vision. This is why we wake up every morning as a church. And number one is we want to love God. Number two is we want to love people. And number three is that we want to make disciples. You know, the, if we're going to do this and do this effectively, we need to follow Hebrews 3.13 and to encourage one another every day while we have the chance. Because whether you realize this or not, one Sunday, you're going to come here and someone that you, that Lord has been putting on your heart to encourage won't be here. They may have gone to a, another church, they may have quit church altogether, or they may have gone home to heaven. The second reason why we want to take our obstacles and turn them into opportunities is that it develops character in us. You know, the John 10.10 10 tells us this, that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. All right? This is, this is part of the difficulties that we're going to face. But let me tell you that what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. 
And getting your ship out of harbor is not about what you accomplished. It's not about how far you get that ship. But a lot of times, it's who you become in the process. Who are you willing to become? Because God has a very distinct plan for your life. And a lot of times, we don't realize what that is. The third thing is that the reason why we want to take our uh, obstacles and turn them into opportunities is to serve others. Galatians 5.13 tells us, don't use your freedom as an excuse to do anything you want. Use it as an opportunity to serve each other. And how are we to serve each other? With love. That's all about our second part of our vision, to love people. The fourth thing is, the reason why that we want to take our obstacles and turn them into opportunities is to practice generosity. You know, church, if we could just learn to, instead of being a reservoir where we're collecting and collecting and collecting, but to be a river. I mean, have you ever sat and watched a river and how much water passes through that? And have you ever looked at a lake or a pond and it's there. That's all that's going to ever have. What do you want to be? Do you want to be that lake or pond where you just collect a little bit? And that's the extent of your impact on the world? Or do you want to be a river? where God blesses you and you turn around and you bless other people. That's what God has called us to do as a church. 2 Corinthians 9.10 says, God will give you many opportunities to do good and he will produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Boy, I don't know about you, but I want to experience a great harvest of generosity. You know, God has placed on my heart and, and placed this burden on us to live an abundant life. And what we've learned is that abundant life looks like this, where, we, where God gives us and then we turn around and help someone else. You know, when, when Jesus gave the example of generosity in the Bible, he, gave, he talked about a little widow who gave just two mites. Unfortunately, sometimes we think about the number and we don't realize the heart behind it, the generosity that goes with it. You know, the fifth reason that we should take our obstacles and turn them into opportunities is it gives us a chance to share Jesus with others, with those that are around us and surround us. Colossians 4 and 5 and 6 says this, Be wise in the way that you act with people who are not believers, making the most of every opportunity. Always be kind and pleasant so that you will be able to answer everyone in the way that you should. You know, we have to be very careful with the difficulties that we go through life because if you say something you react in a way that your friends who know you're a Christian, they don't expect you to, they're going to call you out on that. And if they don't call you out on it, they're certainly going to hold it against you. So the way that we handle our ship being stuck in a harbor, the way that we handle our ships being destroyed, the way that we handle the difficulties that are come to us in 2019 is going to determine how we impact others with the message of Jesus. And the last thing is this, the reason why we take our obstacles and turn them into opportunities is it gives us a way to begin a new life in Jesus. You know, I don't know where you're at, but 2 Peter verse three, or chapter 3 and verse 9 says this, God is patient for your sake. He doesn't want to destroy anyone, but he wants all people to have an opportunity to turn to him and change the way they act and think. In verse 25, it says, look on the Lord's patience as the opportunity he is giving for you to be saved. You know, that's the message. It doesn't matter how 2019 goes. If you end 2019 without knowing 
that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, it's a failure. No matter how much good comes into our life, it's something that we are going to miss sorely. And so here's what I want to do. You know, you are used to me changing things up, right? Um, Kevin, can get your team back up here and sing that same song that you sang before I came up here? And let's everyone stand and sing along with that um, as our uh, moment of invitation. And let's think about what if our life keeps getting better and better? What if God continues to pour out those blessings that he's going to pour out? Because uh, he is going to do it. The question is, are we going to make the choices that allow him to bless us? Or are we going to make choices that force us to live with the consequences of the decisions that we make? I don't know about you, but I want to make the choices that I'm going to get more blessings from God. As a church, it's our honor to play a small part in all that God is doing in and through your life, and we would love to continue with you on that journey. To find out what your next steps could be in your relationship with Christ, simply go to www.tbccentralia.com forward slash next. You see, here at TBCC, it's our mission to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Christ who walk by faith and not by sight. 